Well, it's good to be here. I um, was not expecting to be here. I got really cracked up in the first service. I was standing down there on the front row and looked down. I literally, all I had was shorts and t-shirts and we're staying at a lake house down in Keystone. So very non-tourist place. I've not even, I went to the grocery store one time this week. And so, but I always have, I always have work boots. I always have a flannel shirt, a hoodie and a pair of Carhartts in my truck. Cause you never know when you'll get a chance to like go hog hunting or something. And so, and then I have a box with like guns, ammo, stuff to start a fire, um, like cold weather gear, water purification. I'm not a prepper. I'm just like a little paranoid. Okay. So, um, so I was like, well, I got these cards. So I, I washed them. Um, and then I, I, I'm wearing a shirt that I found at the rental house hanging on the, on a hook on the porch. <laughs> And it just fit, and I hope the guy didn't have COVID. So, um, anyhow, <clears throat> here we are, and it's crazy because at Snowbird this weekend is our it's our missions conference. So, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, some men from from here came to our men's conference. This weekend is our missions conference. Next weekend is our women's conference. There's a bunch of ladies from here coming to that. So we do a lot of uh, adult adult conferences, church equipping conferences. One of the, like if you read our mission statement, um, it says, Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters exist to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through the exposition of scripture, personal relationships. And then the last part of the mission statement says, in order to equip the church to impact this generation. And so our partnership is with the church. It's not just, we're not just a student ministry um, organization or, or camp ministry. And so this weekend happens to be our missions conference at Snowbird. It's the first time I've ever missed that, but um, really needed to get, it was kind of last minute that we planned a trip, my family and I. So, um, so it's cool. It's like, well, they're having a missions conference there. We have a mission Sunday here. I love that. Then also the fact that y'all are going through the book of Acts, like Acts is the, it's, it's the, the biblical book on missions. It's like, it lays it out for us. And so we're going to be in Acts. We're going to, we're going to be looking at the church at Antioch, Acts 11, Acts 13. Um, and then y'all will do a more in-depth study of these texts later in your study on Acts. But um, I, I did want to, uh, it's also, it's crazy because th- like this morning, early this morning, I got texts from, so, you know, Kilby and Greg, my daughter and son-in-law who have, who've come here and shared, they serve in northern Uganda. So they live, they live in a city called Arua, which is in northern Uganda. It's kind of in the corner of, would be uh, northwest Uganda, close to DRC, close to Congo, and close to South Sudan. So like if you flew to Kampala, which is the capital of Uganda, take you about from, that, that's about a 30 to 40 hour trip, depending on layovers and stuff like that. Then you get in a four by four, you get a four wheel drive land cruiser and go about 13 hours through the bush in four-wheel drive to get to where they're serving. And they're working with Sudanese refugees who are Muslim background folks. They're Muslim people who are living in northern Uganda. You talk about an immigration problem. They're coming out of Sudan because of the fighting that's going on there. So many people are dying there. They come to Uganda and they can stay in these refugee camps, but they can't leave those camps and they can't get Ugandan jobs but the Ugandan government will give you, this is crazy, your choice of $5 a month um, to live off of, or 
it's a supply of food that Kilby said it's like, like a bag of rice and a bag of pinto beans would be the equivalent. And so it's, it's a meager existence, and you stay in, this refugee, in these refugee camps. So all across northern Uganda are these refugees, refugee camps with people from Sudan. So Kilby and Greg are working among those refugees, doing cool work, like legit. Like when I was a kid thinking of missions, I thought tribal people fighting war, like third world remote Africa. That was my view of missions. Then when I got older, I've, I've seen, you know, missional work in cities and with the urbanization of the world, a lot of missional emphasis now is, is moving towards the cities because, okay, so like in Uganda, there's such a mass migration towards Kampala, the capital city. So a lot of missional focus is going on there, but there's still a lot of work being done in these remote regions. So I get a call from Greg this morning who said, hey, the team in Chad, in Njamina, Chad is in, uh, it's just pray for them. It's a bad situation. And I wanted to give you an update. And we've been tracking it because we have four snowbird missionaries that live in Njamina, Chad. And, and when Greg was here, he shared, some of y'all might've remembered this. He shared a story about a guy who he led to Christ in Njamina, Chad, who had then, God had used this man, his Muslim background guy, his dad was a warlord, when I say warlord, Boko Haram, Al-Qaeda, he's running guns with those organizations. Multi, multi, multi-millionaire, and he's made his money that way. And then his son, who's like the sixth son of his second wife kind of thing, like massive, you know, bunch, bunch of, uh, this guy has five or six wives, and they've all got a bunch of kids. And this dude comes to faith in Jesus, starts sharing the gospel in the city, 130-something people, last I checked, had been baptized and brought into this house church movement. They're all Muslim background folks. Well, right now, like as we're sitting here, like literally right now, the fighting in Njamina, Chad, is really bad because it's an election. And this will always happen in Uganda um, or, or Chad or Sudan or any of like the, through the central part of Africa. Elections create a lot of instability. And so you end up with warring factions. And so there's a lot of fighting. And so we're trying to figure out how we can help get people out of Chad over to Nairobi, Kenya, because that's kind of a safe landing place right now. So you can pray for that. The, the Worths and the Lanes are the two snowbird families that are there. They're trying to get on a plane as soon as possible, working with some folks at the embassy. Um, and it's just crazy. So missions is ongoing, whether you're thinking about it or not. People's lives are being laid on the line, whether we're thinking about it or not. And my prayer and goal this morning is that as a church, we will, by studying a particular church in the book of Acts, we will become a people who, as a church, are thinking about it. Whether you're going or not, you're thinking about it. You're praying about it. You're praying. You're interceding for those people. It's, it's the first line of conversation when you're sitting around the kitchen table. When you're putting your kids in bed at night, you're praying for missionaries. You're talking about missionaries. And, um, and so I want to look at the book of, uh, or the church in Antioch in Acts 11, because Antioch is the first church that is founded by the global missionary movement from the Christian church that was based in Jerusalem. So the timeline is Jesus's death, burial, resurrection occurs in Jerusalem, okay? And then that's part of the Roman empire at that time, right? So the church is contained within the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And then a great persecution comes and pushes people out of the city. 
and that triggers the missional movement that is still ongoing today, which is the missionary work of the church. So Acts chapter 11, let's begin in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one but the Jews, no one except the Jews. So the stage, the setting, the stage is there is like there is persecution in Jerusalem that drives people out of Jerusalem. You read that Acts chapter eight, verse one, when they, when they kill Stephen, the persecution increases around the city of Jerusalem. So people start leaving to get away from the persecution. Now watch this persecution always serves the greater work that God has in spreading the gospel. So persecution never stops the spread of the gospel. It always accelerates the spread of the gospel. In fact, the word for tribulation, I love this word picture. The word for tribulation in the Greek, uh, in the Koine Greek language, the word for tribulation is the Greek word thalipsis, which means to squeeze specifically like a grape to get the juice out of it. So you squeeze something to get what's pure and good out of it. So the church will often be, you'll see this in history, God will refine his church through persecution, a squeezing of the church, because that squeezing will do away with Christians who are social Christians, who have an agenda other than gospel proclamation and the spreading of the gospel, the building of the church and the making of disciples. Um, it'll, it'll, it'll squeeze out people who only have a cultural identity as Christians. And what will always be left is a strong remnant of people who are ready to do ministry business to advance the gospel. So in our country right now, persecution is coming. And and we're already seeing like the, 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 like, we're seeing the precursors, right? We're seeing it in the language that's being used, um, in, in government and media, uh, when I remember when I was a kid, people would say, well, in y'all's lifetime, you're probably going to see Christians get persecuted in America. And some people say probably won't happen in our lifetime, but maybe in y'all's lifetime. Well, here it comes, here it comes right now. And, and, the, and who would have ever thought that the way we would be persecuted is for the secular world to jump in bed with progressive Christians and try to form a new form of Christianity that is based on not the gospel or the advance of the gospel or the building of the church, but is based on social movements and ideas that merge together social progressive ideology with social progressive Christianity, I don't like to use that word, but it's progressive Christianity to say, let's attack those that hold to a historical orthodox view of Christianity. If you believe in the atonement as substitutionary, as, as penal, as legal, then that's crazy and you're going to be ostracized for that. If you believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, fully, truly God, fully, truly man, that's going to be ostracized. But we've always been ostracized for those things. What we've never been ostracized for in the history of the church is a is standing firm on a biblical view of sexuality, a biblical view of marriage. When the world can when the world can cloud the waters so much and play Jedi mind tricks with with all of society by saying, if you hold to a view of biblical sexuality, then you are a bigoted racist. It's a merging of philosophies and ideologies that is going to make persecution look different than it's ever looked ever in history. That's what we're facing. 
Well, we can learn from the church in Jerusalem that when the church is persecuted, the church thrives and flourishes and grows. But it often does so at the cost of the blood of the martyrs. The blood of the martyrs, Tertullian said, is the seed of the church. And so as martyrdom increases, the spread of the gospel begins in the book of Acts. So they go to the Jews first. You see there in verse 20, it says, they speak the word to no one except the Jews. So this is important. This is significant because the next line in verse 20 says, uh, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. What's a Hellenist? A Hellenist is a non-Jew Greek Gentile. Okay, so you've got the first missional movement going first to the Jews, then to the non-Jews. Why is that significant? Listen, here's why it's significant. Y'all studied the book of Daniel last year, or sometime in the last year or two. You studied the book of Daniel. If you go back to Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter two, Daniel sees a vision of a statue. You remember this? Head made out of one kind of metal, then gold, and then shoulders made out of silver and goes on down. And it's, and it's a representation of four kingdoms. If you study the trajectory of those four kingdoms, what happens is the Jews are contained inside of modern day Israel. Okay, so they're contained there. Then the Babylonians begin to export or exile Jews out of there and spread them throughout the Babylonian empire. The Persians then further that spreading. The Greeks do the same and then the Romans do the same. So at the time of Christ, Jews are not contained in Palestine. They're literally spread as far as Spain, all down through North Africa, up into modern Turkey, all the way up into what would be like modern Eastern Europe. The Jews have spread, right? Y'all tracking? So you've got Jews all over the planet, literally. How did that happen? Persecution. It's called the diaspora. It was God spreading his people. And it's another sermon, and y'all already been through this in Daniel. But he's doing it because they were disobedient and unfaithful. So he uses their unfaithfulness to discipline them to ultimately bring about the good of spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. So all over planet earth, you've got Jewish synagogues, okay, so the missional movement, primarily Paul will do this later, but is to go into a city, go into the Jewish synagogue, explain to these Jewish people. You'll see in the book of Acts, they'll use words like reason with and explain to them from the scriptures, hey, the Messiah has come, but because we're spread out through all the earth, a lot of people missed it, but he's come. His name is Jesus and they share the gospel. Some of the Jews would then embrace it. Then they would go into the city and the surrounding communities and share the gospel with the Greeks or the Hellenists. And that is how the gospel spread in the first church. So that to the ends of the earth, the ends of the Roman empire, the gospel spread in the early church. What drove that? Persecution and people being faithful to spread the gospel. Everyone recognizing that we're on mission. So you see it goes to the Jews in verse 19. Then it goes to the Hellenists. I love that in verse 20, it says, there were some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene. Them dudes ain't even named. And we're all about like notoriety and names, but they're not even named. The two of my favorite dudes in the Bible right there, or maybe there's three or five, I don't know, but there were some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. These dudes are like, well, we don't know the Jewish thing, but we've embraced the Jesus thing. So we'll go to our people. Mission starts with going to your people. Because I can tell you, there are people that speak your vernacular, share your background, know like, like it's natural to speak to your people. You know, this is, this is what's most natural. These guys were doing that. Verse 21, 
and the hand of the Lord is with them. And a great number who believe turned to the Lord. So in verse 21, God was personally involved. God was personally empowering. And the results were great because the, great, the results are always great when God is moving. You know, people, you know that like people will get results sometimes, right? You ever seen a church that, you ever heard of a church or an organization that blows up? Then you got like a, what do you call a celebrity pastor? And then some junk goes down and then, then where are they at? They're gone, right? When God is doing the work, the work is established. So God's moving and working. Um, you've got genuine gospel fruit and a genuine gospel movement. Verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So these no-name guys up there doing ministry, they're like, well, let's send Barnabas. Why would they do that? Well, because Barnabas, um, is, he's got some maturity. He has, Barnabas has apostolic authority. In other words, he is one of the core group of apostles, um, so there's an authoritative position. He's able to come in as an elder or an overseer. So he goes in to, to oversee the work of the, this explosive church movement in Antioch. When God is moving, where God is moving, we need to get involved. So go back to the story that Greg told you about uh, with our brother Amir. If you listen to us talk about it on the No Sanity <clears throat> Required podcast, we use the country of South Sudan. I don't know if any of y'all listen to this. We call him Amir. He has a different name and it's in a different country, but we use that to protect him. In that city, this guy embraces the gospel. Greg shares the gospel with him, gives him a New Testament. Two weeks later, he accepts Christ after reading the New Testament three times. Then he starts sharing the gospel. Then he starts a church and then it grows and multiplies into multiple house churches. You know what we did? Sent solid missionary partners to get him, bring him into their care for the next 18 months. Why? Because he needs to be discipled. He needs to be grounded. Missions need strategy. It also needs passion and fervor and zeal. Oftentimes, strategy will destroy passion because we'll, we'll plan ourselves to death. But passion without strategy can often lead to erroneous teaching, bad doctrine. And so you see this very strategic approach to missions by the mother church or the mothership in Jerusalem. They send Barnabas up there to help oversee the work. He gets there, verse 23, he's equipping, exhorting, encouraging. And then look at this in verse 23, it says, um, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. The goal of discipleship is always to teach people to live in a steadfast, enduring, persevering way. How many of us know people, every one of us, we know people who at one time were strong in the faith and now they're just gone. They've abandoned the faith. It's a big movement right now, huge movement. Have you, heard of, have you heard of people who are deconstructing? This is huge right now. Celebrity Christians that are deconstructing. And what they're doing is they're deconstructing, deconstructing from historic Christian um, views. <clears throat> and they're, <clears throat> excuse me, they're pursuing more of a social agenda. And what happens is <clears throat> when we begin to decentralize the gospel to ministry, we have to centralize that ministry around something. And if we centralize it around philosophy or social movements or uh, other ideologies, then we lose our way. The gospel has to remain central. And so the gospel is what, the centrality of the gospel is what creates steadfast believers. That's why you'll hear pastors and preachers sometimes say, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Be reminded of what Jesus has done and is doing. So you've got this gospel, gospel centrality to the work. Barnabas is teaching them, hey, prepare to be steadfast. You may, it's gonna be rough. It's gonna be a bumpy ride. Following Jesus, church, is gonna be a bumpy ride. 
It is going to be a bumpy ride. It always has been. So Barnabas is, is teaching them perseverance. Verse 24, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So the Lord uses him. A lot of fruit is the result. The fruit, by the way, was the result of God's action, but also of Barnabas's faithfulness. So God will bring about fruit in a number of ways, but he will often bring about fruit and like ministry productivity through our faithfulness. It's always, it's always critical to be, it's, it's mission critical that we be faithful to the call that God's given us. He uses Barnabas' faithfulness, brings about a bunch of fruit. Verse 25, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Who's Saul? Saul become Paul. Up until this point, he's just been kind of being discipled. This is a good, good, good example of we, this later Paul will teach that overseers, elders, and ministry leaders need to be seasoned. They need to be discipled because oftentimes young charismatic guys get put into ministry leadership, but they don't have the maturity or the, the discipleship to be sustained for a long period of time. And so Saul, who becomes Paul, has spent a decade being discipled. In, a, in another place. So Barnabas is like, he's the guy. He's the right guy. It's time to bring him into the, into the picture. He's the guy that we need to bring in to this situation. Barnabas was obedient to and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Verse 26, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So he brings, this is so cool. Paul brings, I mean, Barnabas brings Paul under his ministry and then they become partners. There's no, there's no, there should never be competitiveness between men and women in ministry. There's no, if we're working to advance the gospel, to grow the kingdom, to make disciples, to create steadfast Christians, there is no time, space, or energy for competitiveness for who gets the glory. I heard a preacher recently say, when I, like, when you stand to preach, you're the finger pointing people to Jesus. When, when I point and tell you to look at something, you don't look at my finger, you look at what I'm pointing to. Our job is to be the finger that points people to Christ. That's our job. And so I love this because even like Paul and Barnabas, if we track their journey, it's, it's, it's something we can learn from because at one point they get so mad at each other that they part ways. You read about this. What happened was Barnabas had a nephew named John Mark. Y'all know the story? And y'all will study this story at some point in, in the, in, as you go through Acts. Barnabas has a, a son, I mean, a um, nephew named John Mark, okay? So they, and Barnabas, by the way, Barnabas, you know, he's like the encourager. He's the mercy giver. Barnabas is a dude you want to hang out with. Like he compliments you. He tells you you're doing good. He ch- Paul? like Navy SEAL instructor, you know, he's like, he's intense, man. He's in your face. And he's like, like this, you know, he's right. Here. And so they got very different personalities, which is a, a really cool lesson and how the Lord uses different personalities and gifts and teams. But there's a point where they do this. They part and go separate ways. God blesses both ministries and brings them back together to advance the gospel. In fact, they split over the fact that John Mark's on a previous missionary journey, Barnabas' nephew, John Mark, compromised the missionary work and he bailed on the team. So then he wants to come back on the team the next time they're going out. And Paul's like, no, he's not, he's not coming with us. He quit. He's not coming back. 
And Barnabas is like, oh, Barnabas is like very gracious. He like strong mercy giver kind of guy. He's like, oh, we, and sometimes that can be a hindrance. He's like, oh, yeah, let's, let's bring him back. He didn't mean it. Paul's like, no, he needs to prove himself. So Barnabas takes John Mark and goes one way. Paul goes another way, ends up discipling Timothy, Titus, some other young dudes. In the end, they're working together because in 2 Timothy, when Paul's about to be executed, he writes a letter to Timothy and says, bring John Mark with you when you come to see me because he's profitable for ministry. So Paul and Barnabas teach us how to not compete. They also teach us how to fight in-house because there's a time when we got to sort conflict out. There's a time where we got to work through things as a church. There will be times where there are disagreements within the walls of the church. And oftentimes those disagreements hinder the missional work of advancing the gospel because we get so caught up with what's going on right here. If we're going to advance the the kingdom, we have to understand how to do it in partnership. And these guys teach us that. Verse uh, 26 says, it's the first time they're called Christians. I love this because if you travel in a lot of places in the world, um, religion is geographic. So there are parts of India that are, oh, that's, that's uh, Muslim. There are other parts of India that, well, that's Hindu. In northern India, you've got in Ladakh, that's governed by the, the uh, Ladakhi Buddhist Association. That's Buddhist. And so it's geographic. And so people will say, I've often been in other parts of the world. So Snowbird, um, our, kind of our global footprint is we have, um, and I've shared this before, I think, we have a, an outpost in the Himalayas called Snowbird Himalayan Adventures. We're doing work in Togo, which is where James and Jenna Roberts are preparing to go. And this church is considering them in partnership. And I would wholeheartedly endorse them as we have. We've trained them. We've equipped them. They met at Snowbird. They were discipled at Snowbird. And now they're being sent out by Snowbird and Red Oak Church. So if you consider partnering with them, it'd be awesome. So work in Togo, work in, in several of those African locations I talked about. And when, so, so when you go someplace like that, oftentimes somebody will assume that because you're an American, you're a Christian because it's, it's association with a, a national, a nationality or a geographic location. In this day, no one would have like to be called a Christian. This was not something that the Jewish converts would have come up with because you're, they're recognizing that they're following Jesus as the Messiah. This was an identifying name given to them by the secular world. And so it was very polarizing even within the, um, the, the, the Christian community at times. To be called a Christian is a big deal. It kind of falls, it falls cold on us. Oh, I'm a Christian. Like, no, but I'm a Christian. I follow Christ. I live my life in submission to the lordship and the authority of Jesus. My life is not my own. I don't call the shots. He does. He is the head. I am part of the body. I'm a Christian. It is a wonderful thing, Schindler Drop, a beautiful, powerful, rich DNA thing to be called a Christian. It is not a cultural, social, societal, or Western thing to be called a Christian. To identify with Christ is to identify in his death, burial, resurrection, in his suffering, and in his exaltation, whereby he sits on the throne and rules over heaven and earth and is building a kingdom. I am a Christian. Verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there will be a great famine over all the world. 
This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So this is, this is a, good, a good check out of that story into what's happening next. And I love this because what you see is the ongoing work of multiplication that's happening at the church in Antioch over the course of a year. This is over a year we saw in the text there. That what's going on over the course of that year is that there is generous giving, there's support being given, there's a funding of the work, people are working together, and so you see the church begin to grow from within, and as the church is grow, so people send missionaries there, the church is planted, as it begins to grow, now it's time to multiply. So we jump over to 13, we skip chapter 12, it covers some other um, stuff that was going on, um, the, the death of James, the martyrdom of James, Peter's imprisonment, the death of Herod. So we come back a year later in Acts 13, 1, and we're going to see what has this year looked like for the church at Antioch. We're just going three, three verses here in chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene. Uh, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. That's cool. I didn't talk about this in the early service. Manan is a lifelong friend of Herod. One thing that's really fascinating as you study the intricacies, like the little blood vessels of the church in the book of Acts, you've got impoverished people who are refugees following Jesus, and you've got domestic terrorists converting to, to, like, to Christianity, and you've got kings, governors, like military leaders, centurions, like the gospel touches every part of humanity. There's, there's no, y'all listen, there is no place the gospel cannot penetrate and change a person's heart. And so you've got this guy who's a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch and Saul. Like just, just like when you read the Bible, like we have to learn to read through, like through, see through what the text is saying. A lifelong friend of a boy prince like if you're the king, who gets to play with your kids? That's insider stuff right there. Like him and Herod were playing, I don't know what kids played back then, but I'm assuming they made little swords and played war. Like we're Roman gladiators or we're Roman soldiers. They're in the yard. He's inside man. And the gospel reaches him. There's a gospel witness inside of Herod's household. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So uh, just a handful of observations here from these last three verses that we can take from the church at Antioch and that once they're established and discipled, evidences from that church, observations from that church that should be true of our church, should be true of your church. These should be, uh, these should be uh, reality in every church. The first one is this. It's full of gifted people. The church is full of gifted people. Now, there were in the prophet of Antioch prophets and teachers. And then it names people and talks about different characteristics and giftings. Look, the scripture on multiple occasions gives lists of spiritual gifts. And if you compile them all, there's a bunch of different gifts. Everyone's gifted. Like no human is born who isn't gifted. Everybody's got a gift. Everybody brings something to the table. And we get, like, we get sidetracked sometimes even talking about what, what it means when we talk about gifts. Some people talk, some people, like from the charismatic background, when you talk about gifts, that tends to have relationship to speaking in tongues and speaking prophecy. There's so many gifts the church is given. When I think of tongue speaking, um, and I come from a, like my mom, I'll be hearing my mom 
in the prayer closet doing her thing. And it wasn't Spanish, and she's fluent in Spanish, and it wasn't Spanish. It, well, I don't know what was going on. I mean, I wasn't a Christian. I remember thinking, yeah, I'm going to stay away from that religion. You know, like, but, like, that's a real thing for her to this day. She's one of the most godly people I know, and she has a prayer language. I've never heard her do it in public. Well, a couple times, like, she got excited. Because charismatic people, let's be honest, they get excited. That's where the word comes from, Right. And so, so like they're different. So we see, we, you think of the gifts in different contexts, right? Different um, denominational contexts. Some of you come from the Catholic background, you know, like as a Baptist, I think the two things that I always think other Christians do is we're not allowed to talk to Mary. So I always remind my Catholic friends to say, hey, for me. <laughs> we think she's great. We love her. She's not God, okay? So like, she's not the fourth person of the Trinity. Y'all got it all wrong there, okay? So we need, so like, like I think, oh yeah, that's what other people think. Or they believe in speaking in tongues. But within the church, we're talking about the gifts. We're not talking about big doctrinal differences. We're talking about everybody here brings something to the table if we're gonna move forward and advance the kingdom. We have to all see ourselves on mission. So you see that the church is full of gifted people. However, there are no superstars. We got some unnamed dudes we got some dude named Simeon who was called Najir. So we got uh, Lucius, uh, Manan. You got Barnabas. Like we're more familiar with him, but these guys are not people that like they're no no superstars. Jesus is the hero. Amen. Jesus is the superstar. That's what the church at Antioch teaches. Number two, worshiping and fasting are the fuel of the church's missional work and movement here. Personal holiness is critical for every member in the church. They worship and they fast. There's an emphasis on personal holiness. Every individual in the church outside of this hour on Sunday is pursuing holiness with Jesus. I get so frustrated when people refer to me, knowing I'm a pastor, and like some other worldly terminology. Let me give an example. I'll tell a quick story. It might make more sense. I'm at my daughter's soccer game, high school, public high school soccer game two weeks ago. And some mom behind me is like cussing out the ref and he needed it. The ref. He needed for her to say what she was saying. I ain't going to say it, but I'm, she's like, she, look, you, I'm from the tobacco belt. She's on a top bleacher, chain smoking, letting him have it. And I'm like, Give it to him, you know. So after the, after the game, she comes up to me and she says, hey, preacher, I'm sorry. I shouldn't be talking like that in front of you. So there's this disconnect where people think you've got like professional Christians and then you've got like, like sort of the, they're not professional, but they're sponsored. <laughs> they still got to work another job, but they have some sort of special Jesus sponsorship. And then there's like the rest of us and you kind of pick and choose how serious you want to get about this thing. Listen, you are washed in the blood. You were made righteous by Jesus. You were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You were called to conformity to the image of Christ. And we're all on a mission to build the kingdom. And there's no superstars in that deal. Like everybody's on board. Everybody's got to be on board. And so that starts with our individual pursuit of holiness. Where that disconnect comes from is if I'm not pursuing holiness every day, I'm not going to see the global work of missions that I need to take part of. And I'm going to see other Christians as the people that do that work. So I'm going to have a misunderstanding of what that work is and assume that somebody else is supposed to do it. Personal holiness drives it. Worship and fasting. Number three, Jesus has a mission for the church. That mission is led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. 
led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Individuals are set apart and sent. God does speak to the church to send out those who will do the cross-cultural work. This is a church decision. It's a church effort. It's a church work, a church movement. Number four, Antioch prepared for being a sending agency. It wasn't impulsive. It was in their DNA and their culture as a church, but they had a plan. Missions that is going to be effective needs strategy, needs planning, needs, needs, needs to be executed in a very specific way. It wasn't impulsive. They didn't just throw money at it. They didn't just, just assume the work was getting done. It had to be like we have broken missionary partnerships before because we're so connected to our missionaries. The moment that it doesn't fit our DNA and they lose their way, we confront it. We try to walk through it. And if they're going in a way that doesn't line up with what we believe the kingdom mission of the church is, then we break, break ties with that organization or that person. Like we need to be involved and understand the work. Number five, Antioch approved the call on the members who were sent. Church involvement was high level. Number six, the work was both local and global. So it wasn't, a lot of times people will will, will argue over, well, um, I don't want to go do missions over there because we do it here. We, we, We do it here. No, it's both. As a church, we do both. Both are good. And if there's no competitiveness in the church, we just want to reach people with the gospel. Number seven, the goal in effect was multiplication. Paul and Barnabas planted because church, the church had been planted. Out of that, they planted. And then those churches planted and those churches planted. Churches were planting and planting and planting. It was a multiplication effect. Uh, number eight, this is the way Antioch had been founded. So they're just doing what, they're just doing the way they were founded, that's the way they're doing ministry. Some people came here, they preached the gospel, they led people to faith, they formed a house church that turned into two house churches, that turned into three house churches, that turned into a corporate collective group of people, big C church in the city. And so let's go do that somewhere else. Look what that did for our city. Look what that's done for our lives. Now let's go multiply. Let's do that. So they did what had been done there. They did that um, they did that in, another, in other cultures. Antioch was sending cross-cultural missionaries the same way cross-cultural missionaries had been sent to them. Two more. Number nine, it ain't about Paul and Barnabas. I already said this, but I put it in here. I always put something in here twice if I really want to make sure we hammer it. It's not about them. They're not the heroes. It's about Jesus. Jesus is the hero. Keep that in mind. And last, the missional DNA of the New Testament church is this. Missional DNA of the New Testament church, including Schindler Drive. Jesus is the head, the Holy Spirit is the heartbeat, and we, the church, are the body. Jesus is the head, Holy Spirit is the heartbeat, we're the body. That's missional, that's biblical, that's the DNA that's laid out for us in Scripture. So we're the hands and feet, you'll hear someone say that. We're working, we're doing, we're going, but Jesus is the head, and we're, we're operating in obedience to the brain, the head, and the Spirit of God is the heartbeat. So here's the way I want to do the conclusion and challenge, application. I want you to consider the barriers that you face as a church or an individual to to looking like Antioch. Barriers that probably one or two of these, just just a handful of barriers, probably exist in your life personally or in this church just because they're so common in Western church. Consider these barriers that we in America or in the West face. Number one, doctrinal accuracy without biblical obedience to be on mission. 
In other words, we love the Bible. We love to sit and listen to good Bible teaching. We love to study certain writers. We love the scripture. We're doctrinally strong, but then there's no application of that doctrine that's driving the mission. That's a hindrance in a lot of churches. And there's a lot of churches that, that are, are preaching good, faithful, biblical doctrine, but there's no what one buddy of mine calls in-the-dirt application. Not getting dirty with it. Not going, we're keeping it pristine. The, look, look, the church is a battleship, not a cruise ship. You've heard that before? Doctrine is a tool to be shoved in the dirt so that they're sowing and cultivating and reaping and watering. Doctrine drives mission. But what a lot of times will happen in the American church is will either be doctrine. Okay, this is for churches that love the Bible, but then miss the missions component. And you got churches that don't love the Bible. We talked about progressive churches earlier. Progressive churches that want to replace disciple-making New Testament missions with social endeavors, those churches will not last. They're dead in three to, three to five years. So a church that says, let's go pursue social progressive ideology or agendas that don't love doctrine, they'll go pursue things that will eventually lead them in, in a direction where that church will cease to exist. But oftentimes, doctrinally faithful churches are 50, 70, 80, 100 years old, and they've never sent out a missionary. So doctrine has to drive mission. Second one is biblical illiteracy. A lot of American Christians, man, like, I, ain't, I don't know most of y'all. I ain't picking on nobody here. I ain't trying to start a fight. But most people don't read their Bible. I read a story about a Vietnamese pastor who took two pages from the book of Philippians. It's either two pages or two chapters. I can't remember which two pages in Philippians would be about two chapters. And he took that and planted 200 churches in Vietnam and Cambodia. Take the scripture, believe it, love it, read it, submit to it, be mastered by it. Don't be biblically illiterate. Number three, barriers to being a church like Antioch, personal pursuit of holiness. People's personal sin disrupts their ability to pursue missional activity. Like I talked to, a, um, I remember talking to a guy from the um, IMB, a partnership we have with the IMB, and the guy was a local leader um, in, uh, in Sudan. And he said, man, here's the problem. I can't get young men to come serve because they're, they're, um, issues with pornography and sexual sin, like they can't pass the screening. Like it's, it's literally dis, personal holiness is a stumbling block to being able to execute missional work. doesn't mean we're all going to be perfect, but are we pursuing Christ with worship, personal worship, faithfulness in regards to um, like the scripture and, and intentionality in our pursuit of the Lord. Um, next, just a couple more. Next, the Western idea of church. The Western idea of church is this. And I'm, again, I ain't picking on y'all. I ain't saying this is how it is here. Because I love this church. I feel like I'm at home when I come to this church. I wear some other dude's fishing shirt. And I'm, <laughs> let's roll. All right, so <laughs> I'm going to buy a couple of these. It's very nice material. Um, so people come to church on Sunday and they consume. It's a cons we live in a consumer culture. It's a consumer mentality. So, if, so my favorite store-bought chain restaurant steak to get is at Texas Roadhouse. So you go to Texas Roadhouse, you have a one hour experience. You get, you get what you order. You get out of it what you're willing to, if you ain't willing to spend 30 bucks, then you got to go with some hamburger steak. 
What am I going to put into this? What am I going to get out of this, right? Then I go home and I might complain about it or I might brag about it. I might say that was the best steak I ever ate. But like it's, I consume, I go home and I move about my business. I go about my life, never pausing to think, did that give me nutrition? Is that driving me? Is that, so we come to church, we pause, we listen. We might go away and complain. We might go away and compliment or we might just go away and forget. But oftentimes what happens is, the Western idea of church is a weekly meeting that lasts about an hour and a half. The, the idea that the New Testament church lived in community together, that's what the, the Greek word ekklesia has to do with. They were on mission together. Contentment to depend on others is often a hindrance. Com, 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 like, Someone else is going, this other organization. We give to the cooperative program. We, like, we, and we need to do those things, but we cannot be content to depend on other people to do the work. We need to do, the, every Christian needs to go, it's my job to do the work. Maybe I go, maybe I send, maybe I give sacrificially of my resources, but we all gotta do the work. And last, we've bought into this lie that you have to abandon your vocation in order to really do effective ministry. In other words, uh, this pressure to go into full-time ministry which that, that never even existed in Acts. Why do y'all get to the part where I preached on this back at, uh, in November when I was here, like the way that uh, New Testament churches and families work. They're building tents. They're doing local work. Like they're bivocational. I talked to a friend, a, a, a pastor buddy yesterday, uh, our friend who used to be a pastor. He lives in Hollywood, California. He works on movie sets. He's an assistant director on film sets. They do commercials, TV shows, stuff like that. He's got a really legit in the world job. He's the only Christian there. And he said, I just feel like, I feel like I need to, maybe I need to make that move back into vocational ministry. Like he means full-time, quit that job, go get a church job or whatever. Everybody here should be on mission in such a way. We got to get over the idea that there are people in vocational ministry. They do the heavy lifting. The pastor's job is to equip and teach and lead all of our job to lift. Everybody here. Like we, in our, in our internship program, we tell our interns who spend a year with us, many of them go to the mission field. And we tell them this, there is no such thing. No, no one has ever made a 747 or a 757 or one of those big Airbuses. My, I love those Airbuses, the three something, 330s. Those things are awesome. You can't get on one of those, fly halfway around the world, get off. And somehow along the way, that, that flight turns you into a missional person. If you won't share the gospel with your coworkers, your classmates, your neighbors, the people across the street, the mailman, the person at the store, there's no need to cash it all in and be a full-time ministry person. There's no like, there's no magic thing that occurs when a person says, I'm gonna go into full-time ministry. All of us have gotta be on mission. All of us have gotta be faithful. Just be on mission. Just be faithful. Just do what we've been called to do. Just do what God has called us to do and the world will continue to change. As persecution increases, the gospel will spread and flourish. And Schindler will be sending and going and raising. Imagine, imagine if 20 years from now, a church, this church, a church this size has raised up children to teenagers to young men and women who the first language in the home and in the church is kingdom language. Personal holiness, advance the kingdom. Personal pursuit of Jesus, advance the gospel. So that every kid is thinking, am I supposed to go into full-time missions? Should I go? 
And people, y'all, people freak out about that. I have Christian parents calling me saying, my kid came to Snowbird and now you've turned him into a missionary and they're going to go blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, what an honor. What an honor. I had a mom, I know I'm way over my time. I'm going to tell you one funny story. I had a mom call me last week to, about, it's a personal friend. She wants to send her kids to Snowbird this summer, a couple kids. Well, her oldest daughter I knew had gotten married recently. And I said, how's Madison? And they live in Chattanooga, Tennessee. She said, oh, she's doing great. And then she just breaks down, starts squalling. Oh, they've left. And I said, where'd they go? They moved like between Memphis and Nashville. It's like three hours. I was like, why don't you go have lunch with her? Try doing that in South Sudan. <laughs> you know, like, I'm like, it's okay. If your daughter moved three hours away, you're going to survive. And I said, and she and my wife are good friends. I said, please do not ever cry while talking to little because your daughter moved three hours away. We just went, we just went 18 days with zero interaction because the internet was down because it's always like that. No phone, no, like, well, I guess they're okay. We hadn't heard anything on BBC. They cover it pretty good. Get the BBC app on your phone. See what's going on in Uganda. See what's going on in Sudan. Don't be afraid of raising people who give their lives for the advance of the gospel. The world is raising sons and daughters who are giving their lives for the advance of social agendas, of godless ideology. If we raise our kids and recognize that this is to be a culture and a church that is sending, going, and giving, then we'll impact the, the world, the kingdom, with the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and for the fact that you give it to us to sharpen us, to refine us into the men and women that you want us to be, to encourage our pursuit of holiness, to grow the church. Lord, we are a church that when we come here on Sundays, we do want to be fed and nourished, and we want your word to be fruitful in our lives. We want to have good conversations with one another. We want to, we want to grow in relationships. God, I pray we wouldn't be consumer Christians. I pray that we would be wholly surrendered and fully committed to advance in the kingdom and to advance in the gospel of the kingdom, to proclaiming it, to sharing it, to telling people about it. I pray that this church would, 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 would equip and grow and train missionaries who would go to the ends of the earth and that until those missionaries start going from this church, that they would be above and beyond committed to support the work of those that are going and their partnerships, Lord, with the IMB and with specific missionary families. I thank you as a dad that they support the work of my, my own daughter and son-in-law. I'm so grateful. I thank you for this church and for their love for the gospel and the Bible. I pray your blessing. I pray for clarity of how we move forward in obedience to your word and the lessons we might learn from Antioch who learned their lessons from you, that we might learn those same lessons from you for the glory of Jesus among all people that all might know. Pray that we be faithful in Jesus' name.